Alright, so we have been in uh, first and uh, we've been in first Thessalonians. We've been talking about waiting for Christ. And uh, Paul in these past two chapters of First Thessalonians has been talking about how uh, how thrilled he is that Thessalonians have begun to wait on Christ, that they have turned from their pagan idols and they've started looking to Christ and waiting for his return. And that, in turn, has changed the way that he waits on Christ. Now, instead of merely waiting on Christ uh, for himself to be with Christ, he's now excited for not just himself, but for the Thessalonians also to be with Christ. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through 9, 20. And then I'll continue on in reading all the way down to the first five to the next chapter. But 17 through 20 will be our preaching text for the day. Please stand if you have that for the reading God's word. Since we were torn, excuse me, since we were torn away from the brothers for a short time, in person not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I call again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, and the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Adams caused a sensation four years ago when she appeared on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week under the headline, Freeze Your Eggs, Free Your Career. Her story was one of empowerment, how a new fertility procedure giving women more choices, as the magazine noted provocatively, from the quest to have it all. Adams remembers feeling a wonderful sense of freedom after she froze her eggs in her late 30s, despite the $19,000 cost. Her plan was to work a few more years, find a great guy to marry, and still have a house full of her own children. Things didn't turn out the way she hoped. In early 2017, with her 45th birthday in evening and no sign of Mr. Wright, she decided to start a family on her own. She excitedly unfroze the 11 eggs she had stored and selected a sperm donor. Two eggs failed to survive the thawing process. Three more failed to fertilize. That left six embryos, of which five appeared to be unknown. The last one was implanted in her uterus. On the morning of March 7th, she got the devastating news that it too had failed. Adams was not pregnant. And her chances of carrying her genetic child had just dropped to near zero. She remembers screaming, like, in quotes, a wild animal, throwing books, papers, her laptop, and collapsing to the ground. It was one of the worst days of my life. There were so many emotions. I was sad, I was angry, I was ashamed, she said. I questioned, why me? What did I do wrong? Now, uh, there's a lot that we can pack from there from a Christian worldview. You know, there's uh, the delay of marriage, there's 
uh, the destruction of life that was involved. Uh, there's the profound trust in technological advancement. But the reason why I feel that this, uh, that this article, when I came across it, felt relevant for what we're looking at today is because of this woman's pursuit of a legacy. She really wanted a legacy. Despite her situation, she wanted to make her legacy great by being able to store up wealth in a career and be able to pass it on to children after her. And she was going to use whatever means necessary in order to make that happen. And in boasting by her own sheer force of will and self-determination, she was going to have this legacy that she wanted. And it all evaporated before her eyes. Now, uh, there are a lot of people who desire to pass on a legacy and have been successful to certain measures. Right? They have many kids, or maybe if they don't have kids, they have some philanthropic organization that they leave behind that's able to touch many lives. The problem with all these things is that ultimately, any legacy someone leaves behind dissipates. Over time, it fades until it's nothing more than the ripple of a rock cast into a pond as it slowly fades and it goes over the water. And what's more, because of the problem of death, because we will all die, the one who leaves the legacy behind does just that. They leave it behind. They can't, can't take it with them. Well, in this passage, Paul is going to talk about his legacy. He's going to talk about how he cares so much about the Thessalonians because they are his legacy. But they are not like the legacies of the world. They are not like the legacies that you might leave behind on this physical earth. Rather, it is a spiritual legacy, one that he will not leave behind, one that he will take with him. And as we look at this, the implications for us are that we, every single one of us here, can also have a spiritual legacy that we cannot leave behind, but one that we take with us. We're going to look at this passage and we're going to see how it is that we can invest spiritually in people and how that creates legacy. But uh, the real focus of this message is I'm going to be giving you six reasons why you should invest spiritually in others. Six reasons why you should invest spiritually in others. The first reason, it's the most obvious one, it's the one I've already said, is in order to leave the legacy or in order to take a legacy with you. In verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly from a great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I call again and again. Now Paul has been using in this chapter metaphors of parenthood. If you look at verse 7, said, But we were gentle among you, Nursing mother taking care of her own children. So here he compares himself to a mother. And verse 11, he compares himself to a father. He says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. So he's compared himself to a mother, he's compared himself to a father. And he's, uh, there's been some other subtle call outs to the Corinthians, or to the two Thessalonians being his children. Uh, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about how. When he says in verse 9 that he labored and toiled, it might not be a burden to any of them. There's uh, a parallel verse 
in 2 Corinthians, where he explains to the Corinthians that the reason why he doesn't accept money in exchange for the gospel, one of the reasons, is because it is the duty of a father to provide an inheritance for their children, not the other way around. And so even in that verse, there's the theme of taking care of the children. And so while he has not used the word legacy, the motif of legacy is fairly thick throughout this chapter. And here he speaks of himself as one who has been bereaved of his children. It says, we were torn away from you for a short time. We endeavored to see you face to face. Endeavoring to see them face to face. He had planned on visiting them, but he was not able. He wanted to come to get them, and not just for pleasantries, but as we can see more in the next chapter, to secure his legacy, to make sure that the Thessalonians would not turn astray, that they knew to stay firm in their faith. So he wanted to come to them. He says, I, Paul, again and again, emphasizing how much he desired, in particular, to come to them. Uh, literally, this is once and twice. So why Paul especially? Well, presumably, since he was the one who had shared the gospel with them, since he was the one who had led them to Christ, since he was the one who had been with them uh, in Thessalonica when he visited them, and Acts 18, if you read it there, he is especially invested in them. And as he is especially invested in the Thessalonians in a spiritual manner, he cares especially about them. Now, if you are a believer, there are many people who have invested in you. There's a person or people who led you to Christ, who told you of the gospel. There are people who have built you up over the years. And if you're an unbeliever and you're here, well then it's almost certainly still the case that there is someone who has invested in you and wanted you to come here, wanted you to be a part of this kingdom, wanted you to enjoy the great blessings of salvation. So know that you are greatly loved, like we see here. Paul especially loves the Thessalonians because he has especially invested them. As people have especially invested in you, chances are they have a special attachment to you as well. One of the implications of that is that you should make their job easy. If, if there is someone investing in you and you feel like uh, you don't enjoy that relationship because it feels too nosy or feels too uh, too burdensome. Consider that this might be the kind of relationship you're in, where you have someone spiritually investing in you for your benefit. But the other implication for us, perhaps the greater one, is that we also can have a spiritual legacy. We have the opportunity to invest into others and to build up a legacy ourselves. You, as you speak with other people, your relationships have an eternal significance. They are not just relationships for this earth, but they are relationships that may continue into the world to come. You consider a little more just how much uh, people care about legacies and people um, are distraught when they can't have legacies. Chances are you probably know someone who has had trouble with fertility, unable to have children, I know I've known several, and it is quite distressing to them that they won't be able to have a legacy. 
And think about uh, think about that woman I just met who had frozen her eggs. Think about some of the things she went through. You know, it was uh, she considered it shameful. You know, in this day and age, no one looks down on someone who has problems with fertility, and yet at the same time, people still feel ashamed. Consider the women in the Bible. You know, infertility is a big theme in the Bible. Uh, you know, people like Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth. Why does the Bible have such an emphasis on infertility? It illustrates the problem of sin. In the garden, when there was a curse, the woman was told that she would have pain in childbirth. But it's not just the pain in childbirth. There was a promise of death, and with that death comes infertility, this difficulty of having children, this, this difficulty in having a legacy. Now, the reason why the Bible highlights these things and calls attention to them, and then miraculously grant these women, Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth, others, uh, children, was not to make a promise that all who come to faith in God will have their problems of infertility solved, will be able to have all the children they want. Something more is at play. As, as this infertility shows the problem of sin, shows that death has been brought in the world through sin, these women were given children in order to show that God was dealing with the problem of sin. There were many other women at their time who dealt with infertility, and God did not heal all of them, but he healed this woman, these women and reported in scripture so that we could see how he was dealing with the problem of sin. When did Sarah have a child? When, as Galatians 3 says, Abraham was preached the gospel beforehand. God preached the gospel to him, telling him that there will be a Savior. When did Hannah receive a child? When God decided that her child, Samuel, would be the one to herald David, the king who would save the people from their enemies. When did Elizabeth have a child? when God decided that John the Baptist would herald Jesus, the final king of Judah, who would save the world from its sins. Through this theme of infertility in the Bible, through this theme of, of legacy, God was demonstrating that he was dealing with the problem of sin by sending Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, because the problem of death has been dealt with, because sinners can be forgiven of their sins and not have to suffer the second death where they go to hell eternally, but instead be raised again with new bodies and new life, that means that there is a spiritual family knit together in Christ, a spiritual family which we can invest in, a spiritual family where we can have a great legacy because Christ has solved the problem of death because he has died for, for, for sins, providing forgiveness for us. And so that is, that is the first reason, in order to have a spiritual legacy. The second reason why you should spiritually invest in others is because it is strategic spiritual warfare. With verse 18 at the end, it says, But hate, uh, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Now, most of you probably know who Satan is. He's the chief of the fallen angels. 
It says here that he hindered Paul. Now, Paul probably explains this to the Thessalonians so that they can know why it is that Paul sent Timothy and didn't, uh, and didn't bother coming himself. Paul doesn't explain to us how Satan hindered him. Uh, maybe Satan used governing authorities to keep Paul from coming. Maybe he, uh, through heightened evil activity, uh, prevented Paul's travels. It's uncertain, but what we do know here is that Satan did hinder him. Well, there are a couple of couple of implications of this. First is that spiritual activity is real. Ephesians six twelve says, "But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." There is a real spiritual battle that is going on. Satan is real, the demons are real, angels are real, and they are really at work. However, uh, another, another implication here is that spiritual activity, spiritual warfare, is discernible. Now, you might look at this and say, well, Paul was an apostle. He had supernatural revelation from God, and so that's how we know that Satan is at work. That, that very well may be the case. At the same time, we have been told what things God values, what things the enemy values, what the enemy is doing, and we have been given the means to be able to cautiously discern when Satan and his angels are at work. And so that should not be off limits. We, uh, we certainly don't want to be the kind of people who uh, see a demon under every rock, right? Oh, there's a, a demon in my marriage, or there's a demon kept my tax return from being as high as it should be, but there's a demon that caused me to stub my toe. Uh, we don't want to do that, but we do want to read scripture soberly and be sensible people, sensible meaning, having the sense, uh, like a sixth sense, to tell us what it is, uh, to read scripture and see the, the spiritual activities happening and to recognize it. The biggest implication for us here is just how valuable this work of spiritually investing into others is. Satan hindered Paul. Paul wanted to come and invest more in the Thessalonians to secure this legacy. But Satan would prefer that he stay in Athens and away from the Thessalonians. It shows how much he values that. Consider that. How much Satan values hindering this work of spiritually investing. If you have opportunities to spiritually invest in others, you know, who are those people? Ask yourself who it is. And ask yourself also, what is, what is, uh, what would be the enemy's priorities in keeping you from this? You know, right now, I'm telling you to make spiritual investments in others. And according to the enemy's priorities, he would have you not hear what I'm saying, not apply any of this, to, to not recognize it, and to Discard this truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ has dealt with the problem of death, and one of those great blessings is that you might have a spiritual legacy, that you might invest in others and have a joyous benefit of the gospel. He would have you not know that benefit of the gospel. You remember a few years ago when Bin Laden's compound was discovered? You know, they had a, a is this large, large compound. There was no internet connection coming in and out. 
There were tall walls, even on the balcony, very balcony still normally have very tall walls. And they were uh, especially tall because they belong to sixth floor, right? So they had to be a little taller than them. And on top of that, all the neighbors always put their trash out for collection. This compound would always burn their trash. You know, there were a lot of signs, and you know, all the military intel says the enemy really cares about this place, whatever it is, right? We were able to go to that place and, and capture them on. Well, we have all the signs right here of what the enemy values. And it would be profoundly unwise to discard this piece of military intel and the spiritual battle that we are in. We know what the enemy values. We know what we ought to be valuing. Make spiritual investments in others. Do not let the enemy hinder you and recognize that this has, this has uh, profound weight in the, in the spiritual world. Now next, I'd like us to look at verse 19. For what is our in, in 20? For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the glory of Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now you can consider this uh, reasons three through five. I'm just going to group them all together. You should spiritually invest in others because they can be your hope, because they can be your joy, because they can be your glory. Now this this verse should be fairly surprising, right? If I ask, what is a Christian's hope, joy, and glory? You might give the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? And you would be right. And so it is very surprising that Paul would say that the Thessalonians are his hope and joy and glory. And, you know, as I, as I looked at this in Greek, I found it even a little more surprising because the order of the verses is a little different. It, it reads something like this by to change the order. But what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not you? And then in parentheses after, before the Lord Jesus that is coming. So Paul says that all without even explaining the Lord Jesus. He just says, you're our hope and joy and glory. And then he explains, he qualifies what he's saying, before the Lord Jesus that is coming. And before here, uh, does not refer to uh, temporal antecedents, right? It's not uh, something that comes before in time. He, uh, before means in the face of the presence of, and then the word coming even means presence of Jesus, right? So that the, Paul's talking about being in the presence of Christ, that this is when it will be his, his hope for joy and glory. So, very surprising, but let's, let's talk about these one at a time. So first of all, the Thessalonians are his hope. He is hoping not just for himself to be with Christ, but he's hoping for the Thessalonians to be with Christ because he has invested in them. Second Corinthians explains that, uh, that the Corinthians he considered to be like a virgin that he as a father would be presenting to the groom. Right? You see a wedding, the father gives away the bride. This is what Paul imagines himself in this metaphor of parenthood and legacy, that he is as a father giving away the bride. And so his hope is to be able to do that, be able to see the Thessalonians in the presence of Christ. They are his joy as well. Now, certainly, Jesus Christ is Paul's joy, and when Jesus arrives, uh, Paul will be rejoicing that he is in the presence of Jesus. However, that joy will be magnified 
by the fact that the Thessalonians will also be in the presence of Jesus. They will also receive new bodies. They will also be resurrected from the dead. Paul, as he considers the things of this world, all the various pleasures, etc., what joy does he ultimately have? All these other things will fade away. The only thing that will stay will be him, Jesus, the Thessalonians, those who, those brothers and sisters that have been led to Christ. And then he says, they will be his glory. Now there's been a theme of glory running through this chapter, though, so let's take a look at verse 6. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Right? So he's saying that he didn't seek glory from them. But then in verse 12 he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. So he says, We're not, we don't want glory from you, we want to bring you into glory. And now he's mentioned his glory again. He says, you are our glory. So that whole gene is, we don't want glory from you. We want you to have glory. Why? Because they are his glory. As they are glorified, as they receive glorified bodies, as they are resurrected from the dead, that will be Paul's glory. It will show not only that Jesus is glorious, but it will show how glorious Jesus has been in Paul's ministry as he has been witnessing to the Thessalonians and calling them to Christ. You know, we have, we have opportunities to pour into others. You have opportunities to invest into others. Don't, don't waste this. You know, we usually think of these words, hope, joy, glory, being very individualistic terms, right? Like our own hope, our own glory. But we can have that hope and joy and glory in others. It can be much greater than just me and Jesus. But me, Jesus, and all my brothers and sisters together who have been built up even through God working in me. And you'll probably have noticed that I skipped over this phrase, crown boasting, because to leave that for the sixth reason. The sixth reason that you should spiritually invest in others is because they can be your crown of boasting. This should be another uh, very surprising phrase here. Because boasting is a sin in Christianity. Right? It is a, it, pride is a great sin. And uh, it, it's something that even distinguishes Christianity from other religions because while other religions may seem to, or say they care about humility, in the end, whatever their equivalent of salvation is, invariably, I'm, I'm not aware of any religion where it's otherwise, uh, invariably it comes down to what you have done differently than others, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Right? There's no, there's no place for boasting in Christianity. So how does Paul mention boasting here? Well, there are a few other passages where he mentions boasting. Clarify what he means. So uh, in Galatians 6, he says that he boasts in the cross of Christ. So there he's not boasting in himself, he's boasting in Jesus. And first, in 2 Corinthians, he says that those who boast should boast in the reward. 
So there, once again, not boasting in himself, but boasting in the Lord. But yet, uh, this isn't such a simple, you know, boasting in the Lord, this, this eternal and unchangeable God. It is, it is something more personal, something that involves him. It is his own personal boast. And to illustrate that, some consider 1 Corinthians 9 15, where Paul says that if he were to exchange the gospel money, then it would ruin his ground for boasting. You know, he doesn't think it would ruin anyone else's ground for boasting, but he has ground for boasting in that God delivering the gospel through him, if he were to receive pay, he would be saying that I am going to society, my own strength, my own power. And he personally would have lost his ground for boasting. He says in 2 Corinthians that he boasts in his weakness, meaning that when he is especially in need, when he is recognizing not his own strength, the strength of God, he is able to boast most in the Lord. So on one hand, this is a boasting of the Lord. On the other hand, it is a personal boast because it does have to do with Paul and his use as an instrument of God. He is able to boast in the Lord here because God is working through him in the lives of the Thessalonians. And so he will, as he's gathered together with them, be able to boast in what the Lord has done. Not because uh, of what he has done, but because God through him has led the Thessalonians to repentance. You know, the, the analogy of a crown, Paul uses that elsewhere, for example, in Philippians 4.1. Uh, he uses that to refer to uh, this victory that he has uh, in there with the Philippians. And the Philippians are his crown. The, these are, are something that an athlete would have to show that he has been victorious. Paul has this commission from God to go and plant churches. And these, the Thessalonians and Philippians, and presumably all the other congregations that he founded, these show that he was victorious and that God was working through him, that God was producing his victory. Now, this is not something just for church planters or just for those who are working as evangelists. Consider uh, with me, you can go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, but they will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, so he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, maybe you've read that before and been very curious what it's talking about. Uh, just to summarize here, Paul is saying at the beginning that he's the builder who lays the foundation, right? He is, um, he is bringing people to Christ and teaching them the gospel. They're learning it. And and they're being saved, and that's the foundation. Now other teachers might come along and build on top of that, and if they build on it poorly, that won't matter, but if they build on it well, that will receive a reward. That is something that will be lasting and eternal. And so the principle I'd like to take away from this is that this is this uh, idea of having legacy, this idea of making spiritual investments in others, 
that lasts forever. It's not something just for evangelists and church planning, but something from you and me and everyone who has an opportunity to invest in brothers and sisters. Now, uh, has anybody here ever heard of Dick Hoyt or Team Hoyt? Is that anything else? Okay, so there's this, and maybe you'll know who I'm talking about when I explain, but there's this man who was famous for having uh, 32 times pushed his son in a wheelchair through the Boston Marathon. <laughs> okay, someone knows who I'm talking about. Yeah, so he, uh, his son was a, Rick Hoyt, was a quadriplegic who had cerebral palsy, and his father pushed him 32 times through the, through the Boston Marathon. I feel like that was a very good analogy for, for what we're talking about here when we're talking about boasting, the, the Thessalonians being just crowned boasting. Rick Hoyt, the, the quadriplegic with cerebral palsy, you know, he registered for the Boston Marathon. He has 32 medals. I don't know if they really have medals or certificates or whatever, but he has completed the Boston Marathon 32 times without ever lifting a leg. And he is able to boast, and when he boasts, of course he's not boasting in his own athletic ability because he has none, he has, he has less than, you know, the least of us here. But he's boasting in his father. Now, there are some places where this analogy breaks down. The reason why I was thinking about the story is because uh, this past Thursday, just a few days ago, Dick Hoyt, the father, died. And so, uh, though uh, Rick Hoyt, you know, is no longer able to be with his father, he will be with uh, God and boasting him forever. And Rick Hoyt's certificates or medals will all fade and eventually no one will even know where they are. But our crowns of boasting, our medals, will be our living brothers and sisters who will be with forever and ever. And we will be able to see what God has done in them through us, and we will be able to rejoice in this amazing blessing of the gospel that we have taken with us, this great legacy God has worked through us in them. Living crowns, living medals. And so, with these six reasons, you ought to persevere. Persevere in making spiritual investments. Paul was hindered by Satan, and yet he still managed to continue making spiritual investments. You know, Christ has invested in us, and in doing so, given us a new life and empowered us to be able to make investments ourselves. So how do we do that? Well, uh, first of all, it is the case with unbelievers. So as Paul spoke to unbelievers, bring them to Christ, they were his crown of boasting. You, as you speak to unbelievers, there is a potential there that God could use you to bring this person to Christ. So do take advantage of those opportunities. You know, it might be uncomfortable now, but imagine that for all of eternity, you would have this living person, this crown of boasting, and you would be able to say, God, work through me in them. And pray. Pray for those who do not know Christ. You know, uh, we've started praying more frequently on Wednesday nights, or not Wednesday nights, excuse me. We started praying on the home groups more frequently for those who don't know the Lord. 
just something uh, very valuable to do. One of the most uh, serious times I ever engaged in prayer was when I met Sarah. Before we started dating, she was an unbeliever. I thought she was pretty wonderful and really wanted God to save her. And so I prayed and prayed. And that is not something I regret. <laughs> God answered my prayer. Uh, I would encourage you to pray for this not in the Lord. They will be your crown of boasting. And for those who are already believers, you can invest in them. You can build them up, encourage them. You can be present for them. Think of ways that you can be present. You know, there's a lot of opportunities here at this church. There's the Wednesday night prayer meetings. There's the, the Sunday school where uh, there's not always as many people as there could be. And those are times when you could encourage others, not just by sitting and listening, but there's lots of times to talk to each other, especially in prayers. We, we pray together in groups. Consider these opportunities you have to spiritually invest in others. Ask how you can serve. If you if you come to me or Pastor Josh and ask, we might not have an answer right away, but we will we will find something because there's there's so much around here to you've ever heard of the Pareto principle that 20% of people do 80% of work. There's no reason why we can't find that here now. And I tell you these things not as commands, but they are good things to do. I tell you these things because they are. It is an opportunity, it is a blessing of the gospel that because Jesus Christ has dealt with the problem of death, that we are able to make these spiritual investments, that we are able to build a legacy that we will have with us forever. Consider what wonderful opportunities we have. In the first century, uh, grave goods were still a common practice. You know, like the pharaohs would do when they would keep a lot of stuff with them that they would take into the afterlife. And Christian graves are notable because they wouldn't have great goods, right? Because they knew that they couldn't take physical things along with them. But they did not do that because they didn't think they couldn't take anything with them, right? They knew that what they would be able to take with them would be in the resurrected body and the resurrected bodies and the lives of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They couldn't take the physical legacy behind them, the spiritual legacy of them. And that is, that is precisely what we should do as well. And so consider these six reasons once again. You can have a spiritual legacy, this is why you should invest in, you should invest in spiritually in other brothers and sisters because you can have a spiritual legacy because it is strategic spiritual warfare, because they can be your hope, your joy, crown of boasting and your glory. Because of sin, mankind separated from God has no hope. Mankind, apart from any salvation, because of the problem of death, can only attempt to leave a legacy behind, often fail, and that legacy will fade, and that person will not be able to keep it with them. And what's more, because of the second death, they will suffer eternally. But God has provided a way of escape. God has provided His Son, Jesus Christ, who has died for us, solving the problem of death, so that we might live again and might live with those that we have invested into. Because of Jesus Christ and His wonderful gospel, we can have a legacy we can take with us. Let's pray. Dear Father, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the blessings of the gospel, many of which we do not consider, including this one of having a spiritual legacy. Pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we would be a thriving kingdom, and that we would be able to enjoy you when we see you, but not just to enjoy you, but to enjoy you as we see you in others and how you have worked through us in others. And maybe, as it says in Isaiah 51, sing, O barren one who did not bear, bring forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. In Jesus' name.